Matthew is in the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament, after Malachi, before Mark. Matthew 9.35, the last couple verses in Matthew chapter 9. Well, when Christ came uh, from heaven to earth, just around the turn, turning to the first century, there were all sorts of uh, ideas about God which were flowing around in humanity at the time, not the least of which was the Greco-Roman world. Uh, the Greco-Roman world into which uh, Christ came, the Mediterranean world, and the culture in which uh, the true message of Christ spread rapidly uh, in and through the first century. One example, of course, is uh, the, the Greeks, the culture of, of the Greek gods and mythology of polytheism. And for many of the people, and, and by the way, the, the Greek culture was really one in which you see many of the uh, first century churches starting among Greek culture, places like Ephesus and Galatia, Corinth. Uh, these were places that were heavily Greek, Greek influence. And so uh, your average guy in those days envisions not God, but gods, plural, as uh, sort of a, 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 a multiple amount of gods. They were polytheistic. But these gods were basically uh, like humans, only worse. And they were engaging in all kinds of cosmic feuding. And there were sort of relational dramas and heavenly uh, jealousy going back and forth as one person did that to uh, one of the gods' spouses or daughters. One was dating the other and these sort of things were flying around and they were getting back at each other. And it was sort of like a heavenly soap opera up in the clouds as the poor little peon human beings down in Greek culture would witness this thing play out. And that was a very common idea of deity in those days. And so it was quite a surprise, quite a new idea that, first of all, that there was one God when Christ comes in and and his message is, is propagated, not only that there is one God, but he, that he was a compassionate God. That he was a compassionate God and a merciful God. That he wasn't involved in uh, these sort of heavenly adultery relationships and these kind of things going on. But the, he, that he had an interest in humanity, a seeking of humanity, and was compassionate towards humanity as the God of Humanity, this was quite a surprise uh, to the culture in which Christianity came. And we see that this, this exact idea in this morning's text, that Christ comes both to teach and demonstrate that he himself, that he is the embodiment of the compassion of God, that he is the pristine compassion of God, his person, his message, his death on the cross, his resurrection, everything that he did and is still doing through his true church as he extends his compassion to a lost and very needy humanity. That one of the banners that Christ wants to be flown in his name uh, to represent and show the true God is that he is a God of compassion. Because the last thing that we need as humanity uh, are gods which are like us. Uh, to be saved, to be helped, we need something that, who, who is not like us not caught up in emotional moodiness and anger and imperfections like false ideas of the gods. We need a God who is beyond that, who shows a tangible, 
compassion and an omnipotence, a power to save. So we will see that, a glimpse of that in the text this morning. Follow along as I read verses uh, 35, excuse me, verses 35 through 38 of Matthew chapter 9. God's word says, verse 35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. But the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. A little bit of uh, a few words on the context here in case you haven't been with us. Uh, A few remarks about what is going on in the book of Matthew. Matthew, of course, wrote this about mid-50s A.D. in the first century. Uh, He was not a good and upstanding uh, moral religious Jew. He was far from it. He was a tax collector. And so was from the worst of, uh, of really, of, of, of the culture, a thug, a thief. For this precise reason, Christ chooses him and goes after him and not only saves him, but transforms him to be an apostle. He was an apostle, uh, which is that group of 12 men chosen by Christ who would be these first, as we saw in verse 38, these first workers sent into the harvest, the harvest of souls, that is to bring the good news of forgiveness and entrance into heaven through faith in Christ. And so after Christ was risen and resurrected and ascended back into heaven, the apostles spread out into uh, this, the Greco-Roman world, the Mediterranean world in the first century, town to town, city to city, port to port, preaching Christ, making disciples, starting churches and repeating uh, that. So now at this point in history where we are in Matthew 9, of course, this hasn't happened yet. We're still in the very sapling stages of what Christ is doing for uh, his church. He has only recently called the apostles. Uh, Matthew 9, 5, uh, 35 to 38 is sort of a, a porch to the greater portion of Matthew 10, which introduces the disciples, all of them, and what they're doing, and so on. We'll get, that, get to that in coming weeks. Uh, now, Christ, big picture, let's back up a little bit. Christ had a plan uh, in coming from heaven to earth to become a man. His plan is simply, uh, which is articulated in Matthew 16, 18, to build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. If we were to ask, what's, what is Christ doing since then and now? Building his church. In other words, Christ will cause his, his kind of biblical Christianity to spread out from a few guys in nowhere Israel to the Roman world and to you who are sitting here today to around the globe. And what that means specifically is that he is motivated by his compassion as he looks down upon a lost and a sinful humanity with the result that he comes and he saves. And at the cross, the cross is the pinnacle moment in history in the resurrection where he willingly holds himself accountable for the sin, every sin of all who would ever believe in him. Talk about compassion. No Greek God ever did that. No Greek God ever stepped out of their uh, cosmic throne room to come down and show this tangible love to those over whom they reign. And so this is what Christ is doing, being the true God. 
His plan involved people not only in first century, century Jerusalem, the area around the Sea of Galilee, which is where we're at here in Matthew 9, but again, the greater Roman world and all nations, because Christ, being the God of the world and the Lord of the world, is also the Savior of the world. That is what he means when he says, Matthew sixteen eighteen, I have I am coming to build my church, and hell will not stop me. Hell will not stop him, stop him precisely because his plan in building the church involves saving people who are on their way to hell and who deserve hell. And the plan of building the church is manifested in rescuing souls from hell to serve Christ. And so this plan involves the, these 12 apostles. They saw Christ. They were chosen by Christ. They lived and died. They were given a very unique, non-transferable spiritual gifts of healing and of miracles uh, to raise the dead as Christ did. And so through these apostles, Christ it, literally he changes the world, turns the Roman Empire upside down, and they really have no clue that this is about to happen as they're sort of tripping over their sandals here proverbially in first century Jerusalem, which is precisely the point, that Christ would get the glory. Most of these guys are uh, pretty normal guys, blue-collar guys in their 20s, struggling with everything that we struggle with. Christ chooses them for that reason so that we could look back in history, see that it, indeed it was him who is building the church. And then the apostles would delegate, not apostles, that was a one-time uh, first century confined office, they would delegate to pastors, pastors, and that would be not a, a continuation of the apostolic office, but sort of a new uh, Christ-ordained, Christ-provided means to care for this church that Christ is building through his power and for his glory. This is what the apostles did by the grace of God. So, nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 35 to 38, and into chapter 10, records what God wants us to know about the beginning, then, of all of those things. H- how did this global Christianity thing come about, involving these very average, these 12 average men, sinful men? This will deal with that, including into chapter 10. As we get into the details of the passage, keep in mind that this is, this is, we are watching God in action. Let that never cease to amaze us. When you read scripture and you see Jesus walking around and Jesus talking, this is God in action. And so we do well to pay very careful, careful attention to what he says, what he does, how he does, what he does. And so the passage this morning then in part answers the question, God in action, being the most loving, caring being in the universe, what are some ways he's going to extend that care and that compassion? What will he do? Answer in part, verse 35 to 38. And of course, all of this points to the cross, which is the preeminent expression of love. So with that, with a little bit of framework of where we're going here, as we sort of start a new section of Matthew going into chapter 10, 11, and so on, Big idea is this. It's in your bulletin. Though humanity, we are like lost wandering sheep. God sends Christ out of compassion to teach, guide, shepherd, and save any who put faith in him. Though we're like wandering sheep, God sends Christ out of compassion to teach, guide, shepherd, and save any who put faith in him. Him. And our outline this morning will be this. We're going to see about six expressions of God's love for lost humanity through Christ. 
Six expressions of God's love, God's compassion, his loving heart for lost humanity through the person and the work of Christ. God wants us to know that these things that Christ, that he is doing here in these four verses, these are expressions of his love to set the scene, to begin putting up the, the, the framing, as it were, and the foundation for this thing called the church, which would be God's greenhouse to provide care and growth for parched, withering souls. This is the framework and the sort of launch point for that. So a very important point in history. Number one, number one expression, and, and, and before each of these points we could say Christ is as an expression of love. Number one, Christ pursues and seeks lost humanity because we would not naturally seek him. Christ pursues and seeks lost humanity because we would not naturally seek him. We're making up fables as a human race uh, about various deities and these kind of things. So the difference between uh, biblical Christianity, I was talking to someone this week who um, does not profess Christ, and they're asking me, what's the difference between Christianity and, say, uh, a lot of the other major world religions, and it is that point, number one right here, which we see at the beginning of verse 35, that, that namely, the, 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 all the world religions are crafting and coming up with ways to go and, and get uh, some form of deity or heaven or utopia, and the difference with the true God in Christ is he comes down. He comes down to save us and to seek us. That is the difference. Look at verse 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So this is a summary statement of everything Jesus did up until his sin-bearing death on the cross. It's very simple what he's doing. He's preaching and he's healing. And he's, and he's doing this in all of the cities and their synagogues, well, which ones? Uh, these, of course, are in the Sea of Galilee region. Uh, first century history records that there are about 200 villages around this area of the Sea of Galilee. 200 villages and cities. The Sea of Galilee, which is about 7 miles wide, 13 long at its longest points. Uh, the, and the area around it, the valley, is about 40 by 70 miles it's a, it was a uh, agriculturally a rich area, lots of industry. It was hustling and bustling with villages and crowds, people waiting for the Messiah, knowing they couldn't go get the Messiah, knowing they couldn't go get God, uh, notwithstanding all of the ideas floating around about various gods and pagan cultures and these kind of things. They knew that Messiah had to come, hence the high anticipation and the waiting we are waiting. Why? Because God has to come to us. We can't grab him and make him come down. And this is what we are seeing when Christ comes. He is going through all of the villages, teaching and preaching. Why? Because God, moved by his own compassion, is the seeker of the lost. We, we talk about this frequently. God is the seeker. Christ said, I came to seek and to save the lost. Man is the recipient. Christ is the pursuer of the sheep. And in large part, this is where the love of God for lost humanity begins. His own decision to come after us. 
That's what love does. It goes after the object that it loves to show its love. Christ is the seeker. Number one. Number two. And in his going through all these villages, number two, Jesus is engaging in biblical preaching to humanity because we do not naturally know him. We don't naturally know him. Jesus, as we see clearly in verse 35 and other verses, he's engaging in biblical preaching, preaching and teaching to humanity. Why? Because that's the thing to do, because that's just what we've always done. No, because he wants to dispense truth to us. Because we do not naturally know him. We're not born uh, with the full comprehensive true knowledge of God in Christ. That is why we have no less than 66 books of the Bible. God wants us to know a lot about him. About his plan of redemption. His glory, his love for us, his compassion. And he has... He has wasted no ink nor spared any. He wants us to know him. The 66 books contain that. And so Christ is being God. Every, every word he preaches is the word of God. Look, look at verse 35. He is teaching in their synagogues. The synagogues would have been the, uh, the Jewish equivalent of a Christian church. Of course, they met on the Sabbath on Saturday. But these were, uh, there were synagogues in every village when you would roll into an ancient Uh, A Jewish village in the old days, there'd be a giant pole that stuck way up in the air and it rose higher than anything in the the city, in the town. It was just a plain pole so that people could come and say, okay, the synagogue is there. Uh, They didn't have their their MapQuest or their Google or whatever. They could look it up. They had the large pole and so they would meet in the synagogue and they would meet for hours. And there would, would, typically there would be synagogue officials. And what would happen is uh, the New Testament, of course, wasn't completed by then. They had the 39 books of the Old Testament, but various uh, officials, which would be the equivalent of like a pastor today, would get up. They would have various readings from the law and the prophets, and they would pray, and then one of the officials would stand up and exposit uh, a, a passage from the law and the prophets. They would go verse by verse. We see this in places like Nehemiah 8 and 9. They would go verse by verse and explain the text, uh, apply the te- and apply the text to the hearer from its natural sense uh, and its authorial intent. So this is in part, by the way, where we get our tradition of expository preaching. Not only is it commanded in the New Testament, but we see that practiced uh, in the Old Testament in the synagogues and so on. And so Christ is going into the synagogues and Christ is a preacher. And this is probably what he's doing most often. He's preaching and teaching. He's, notice, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. The gospel of the kingdom of God, of course, is the good news that God is here and he has come to save. The kingdom is, the, the earthly kingdom of God, heaven, is not here yet, but the king of heaven is here in that sense. And so really, and that's the idea that the kingdom is here and Christ is preaching that. The kingdom is here because the king is here. So he is preaching and preaching and preaching constantly. And this is an expression Let's, let's remember this. This is an expression of Christ's love for people. A love for people who do not naturally possess all the knowledge about God and godliness. Another passage which I like, Mark 6.34, I'll put it up here, that expresses God's love in teaching. Jesus, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd. Notice, watch the progression here. He felt compassion for them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Do you see that? 
So Christ's profuse teaching ministry was motivated by his love for people. He did this because of his love. His preaching exists because of his compassion. He has a compassion due to our lack of knowledge, in part due to our lack of knowledge about him, our need for knowledge of him, and how better off we are when we have the true knowledge dispensed to us through the word of God. So he preaches, and when he ascends back to heaven, he delegates men to after him to do this. And so it is today that the preaching of the word of God is to be an expression for, of compassion for the people of God. That we need to be instructed and poured into and have our minds and the grid of our thinking dialed in and sharpened because we are better off when we know and apply and live out the truth of God. And we're not naturally born with that. So this has been God's plan for centuries. And I and the leadership here, I would ask you that you would pray for us in the preaching preaching ministry in Cornerstone Church that it would always be an expression of compassion for people in obedience to our Lord who modeled this flawlessly. Number two. Number three. Jesus is, number three, previewing heaven to humanity so that we can put all our hope in him. Jesus is previewing heaven to humanity so that we can put all our hope in him. What do we mean he's previewing heaven to humanity? Look back at the end of verse 35. He's previewing heaven to humanity. Again, in the summary statement of verse 35 of, his, of how he's occupying his time to the cross, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and notice, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So, not only is Christ teaching and speaking verbally, revealing the kingdom of the God, the kingdom of God verbally in His teaching, but He's showing uh, a manifestation and a preview of the kingdom of God on earth through His healing ministry. That's that's the point here. I want you to know Christ is doing this because He's in effect saying, "I want you to know that you can." You can sell the farm on me. You can be all in and have hope in me. Being the king of heaven, I'm showing you what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. So you can rest under the great burden of the curse. And the sickness and death and disease is just constant, constant in our lives and around us. Which we will never escape until the king of heaven comes to set up the kingdom of heaven on earth in that future day. And may that day come soon. But he wants us to see this preview so that we can put all our hope in him. And notice in the text, it says there's an emphasis there. He was healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness. There's this really extraordinary comprehensiveness to the healing ministry of Christ. And it was said and it is thought that in the Galilean region... When Christ was there, you know, 30-ish, 80, 30-ish, these 200-some villages, it is thought that disease and sickness were, for the most part, temporarily eradicated, that they did not exist, consequent of Christ's going through, as it says in verse 35, all the cities. 
the people lived in all the cities. End of verse 35, he healed all the diseases. And for a time, Christ shored up the curse and said, enough for a moment, because I want you to know that you can hope in me as the king of heaven. And this is just a brief glimpse of what the kingdom of heaven will be like for all who put your trust in me. I mean, what would that be like? Especially a place like the first century ancient East, where disease and death and the lack, because of the lack of medical technology and these kind of things, I mean, it was rampant. And for a while, no one was sick. No, no blind people. No paralyzed people. No cancer for a time. A little grim, glimpse that we would hope in him. Number three. Number four. Christ, number four, has compassion for sinners because we are spiritually beat down without him. Christ has compassion for sinners because we are, we are spiritually beat down without him. Thrown down. We are crushed, weary, exhausted in our, in our own sinfulness without him. Verse 36. Look at verse 36 with me. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. The Greek word there in the original God-inspired text uh, that's translated compassion, it's an interesting word that was originally an anatomical word or a physiological word that referred to uh, like the kidneys or the bowels or the intestines, the inward guts. Like, why did they use that for compassion? Because this word describes, it came to describe that deep down emotion that's felt like inside the body, inside the soul, that refers to, and describes a, an emotional compassion for someone, a pity, a love, a mercy, a demeanor of mercy on someone. I suppose it's similar to when we say, for example, you know, well, she has a large heart for kids. We do not mean that her cardiac muscle is abnormally large due to some affiliation with children. Uh, we mean that she has a compassion for them. She loves them. So it's similar with this Greek word here for compassion. Christ felt compassion. And what, a, what an astonishing idea for deity as, as people were saved out of these Greco-Roman cultures. That he has compassion? That he has feelings other than rage and this sort of shameful jealousy, bizarre cosmic sexual idolatry feelings that a lot of the gods they had were involved with, that he has compassion on people. And notice back at the text, it says, he felt compassion because they were distressed and dispirited. This condition of the crowds in part brought out Christ's compassion. And both of these words are describing that uh, their spiritual condition, not their physical condition. 
His compassion for their physical condition is expressed in verse 35. This is his compassion for their spiritual beat-downness, if you will. They, it's, it means that they are spiritually burdened apart from Christ because, precisely because of our, all of our individual struggles that, that is just wearying our struggles with sin. The word there translated distressed, it means to be harassed, to be bothered, to be troubled. Speaking again of the spiritually lost condition, that's the idea of the harassment that our own sin brings upon us. Dispirited, notice that word there, they were dispirited. It, the Greek word means to throw something down with force. It was the same Greek word was used in Acts 27. Remember of, of the shipwreck, which pa, the apostle Paul is on. And it says they were throwing down the tackle out of the ship so they wouldn't sink. And they were throwing all the gear out of the ship with force so the ship would stay afloat. Thrown down with considerable force. It's the idea that, that our sin with which we are born... Is like a, just a, a merciless taskmaster who takes us and slams us to the ground, pins us underneath, harasses us. And so our moral failures and sin, though it may feel nice and numbing at times at the outset, it seeks nothing more than to harass us and to throw us down with considerable force, to throw us overboard. And for this reason, Christ, he has compassion. And he came to save, not by our works, but by his own grace. He, he seeks to pick that compassion off of us, to save us, to chase away sin's harassment. In our condition, Christ feels compassion. And really, this is nothing short of amazing. Why would God feel compassion? Is that your natural reaction to crowds of imperfect people who are dysfunctional people like you and who have issues like you and who have moral blemish like you? That, you have, that your knee-jerk is compassion towards them. When you see people who just, oh man, they're a, that person is just a problem person. Is your response a pristine compassion? It is not mine. What a glorious truth this is about our God. He feels compassion for sinners like you and me and these crowds. This is just a wild reality that stands out among all other systems and supposed deities on the planet. This is something that we could meditate and celebrate, and I suppose we will for all eternity by the grace of God. In preparation for that, I don't want to zoom past this extraordinary sight in the text too quickly. To, just to take a little closer look at it for a moment. First, <coughs> notice that the text says nothing about what the crowds did upon whom he feels compassion. It says nothing about any heroic virtue among the crowds such that they would be deserving of the compassion of their creator. Nothing like that is mentioned. This compassion comes from the holy, pure perfect, loving heart of God.
So we are granted a great glimpse into the heart of God, the most sacred place of the universe, by the way, the heart of God. God felt compassion because God is a compassionate God. That's his nature. Much of our message to the world as God's people and God's churches is that God is compassionate towards sinners. We cannot earn God's compassion because prior to existing, God already had compassion in his heart before we were able to earn anything. We do not leverage God's compassion towards us because we cannot leverage something that is already extended towards us. You leverage something that requires great force to get. But God already extends compassion without us exerting any force except the force of our sin. Something that's already extended towards us is compassion. Christ leveraged himself up on the cross to die in our place without any virtue or any moral force of our own. It was all him and his compassion. Thomas Watson says this, the great 17th century Puritan. He says, we may force our Lord to punish us, but we will never have to force him to love us. Yes, Dr. Watson, thank you. We will never have to force that. We cannot earn his compassion because his motivation to extend compassion to sinners is not something that we can give to him. We don't motivate him. No, his motivation is his own self. His own desire to show compassion is his motivation. Christ paid the penalty on the cross for our sin, not because we'd offered him a gift or kindled his motivation, but because he desired to extend his own compassion. We cannot convince God to extend us compassion because God has decided to show us compassion, though he, we had not ever approached him for any such negotiation. Remember, God is coming out of heaven to seek out us. Jesus went to the cross to die as an act of his own compassion. For us, not our convincing of him of anything. Salvation is not an endeavor in negotiation. It's receiving through faith the compassion of God that is already being blasted towards you. None of those people there in the first century Galilee had lived the life that matches up to his good and loving commands like us. But notice, Christ still felt compassion. How is this? Though none of those people like us had honored him with their lives, notice when the Son of God, verse 36, saw the people, he felt compassion. And though none of those first century crowds like us had lived like God's little angels, notice Christ the King of Kings felt compassion. And though none of those people lived a life deserving of his love, this is, this is a ragtag crowd like you and me with moral blemishes. And Jesus saw them amazingly. And this is, this is a wild idea. He felt compassion. And though none of them like us 
would ever turn our heart or our eyes or our devotion to God in and of our own will, Christ turns his compassion towards us. As I reflect on unfortunate things I have often been thought, often said, deeds done, it seems far more reasonable to me that when God, like it says in verse 36, seeing Eric, he feels anger. He feels hate. He feels loathing. It seems far more reasonable that that's what it would say towards someone like me who has failed his good and loving standard of moral perfection. Not compassion. I, I, you ought to marvel that it doesn't say seeing the people he felt disgust. Seeing the people he, he felt a loathing feeling. From the life I've lived. It should say that. He felt compassion. Seeing the people, it doesn't say, it doesn't say he felt, he thought to himself, you idiots, when will you ever learn? You moral monsters of iniquity, when will you ever learn? No, it says he felt compassion. God feels compassion on sinful humanity. His compassion is an extended in the person of Christ, the preaching of Christ, Christ's life, Christ's death, Christ's shepherding, Christ's resurrection, Christ's ascension, Christ building the church. That is the expression of the compassion of Christ. Oh, which by the way, side note, as we love Christ for his compassion towards us, let us love what Christ loves, the church. You can no more say, well, I I love Christ, but not the church, any more than you can go up to a husband and say, I love you, but I I hate your spouse. Man, she is, uh, (laughs) she's something else. No, there's no such dichotomy there, my friend. If you love Christ, you will love what he loves. You'll be involved with what he is involved with. You You will come into what he is building, the church, or you do not love Christ. Oh, notice his compassion here towards you. He felt compassion. Jesus Christ is the purest expression of compassion in the universe. He is compassion in the person. And yet his compassion continues. His compassion for sinners because of our sinfulness. But notice, number number five. Christ has compassion for our wandering ways because the errors to which we easily stray, not not difficultly, easily stray. Yet he has compassion on us still. Don't ever think you can exhaust the compassion of Christ. He has compassion because he is compassionate. Look at verse 36. Notice he felt compassion for them. End of verse 36. They are like sheep without a shepherd. What a, that's an interesting statement, isn't it? They are like sheep without a shepherd. That, that brought out his compassion on them. As Christ looked upon the harassed, thrown down crowds, notice the most accurate way to describe the scene is sheep without a shepherd. And it's safe to say that these 200 villages in which these people harassed and thrown down people are, it's probably a pretty 
accurate capturing of all of humanity. People are likened to sheep, and the care which Christ desires that they receive, as spelled out in the Bible, is like shepherding. In fact, the word pastor in the Greek, it comes from that agricultural term, sheep herding. Let's think about this for a moment. I I recently had the opportunity to interview a guy uh, who was a, a, a sheep herder, a shepherd for many decades, since he was like 12 years old. He had sheep, he had a, like a few dozen and a few thousand. And he explained to me that sheep are an animal which it's really hardwired to need a good, hands-on, constantly monitoring shepherd. The, the sheep, he said, is built that way. He said it's really amazing that the sheep's missing puzzle piece is a good, active, competent, caring shepherd. That's how God made them. And God says, this is how we are as humanity. In fact, sheep is the thing to which human beings are most frequently likened in the word of God, in the mind of God, not, not cheetahs. We're not, it doesn't say cheetahs. Panthers. Some of you, well, I'm more like a panther. Now you're a sheep. You're a sheep. It doesn't say falcons or velociraptors or hammerhead sharks or whatever. No, it's sheep. And because of that, oh, because we're like unfortunate little sheep who wander, Christ says he has compassion on us. What an amazing thing. Sheep, uh, a little more on this from uh, this guy I got to interview. He said they need to be led to proper feeding. You know, hence things like Psalm 23, which by the way, we'll be studying in, uh, in trust that they need to be led to eat the right thing at the right time. The metaphor for this would be preaching, of course. Sheep prefer to follow their, their shepherd. It's very difficult to push sheep from behind. They need to see someone out in front going where they need to go, sort of like the picture on your bullets. And look at that real quick. I think that's a great picture that captures it. There's a guy sort of on a precarious hillside, and he is not pushing them from behind, but he's out in front. He's out in front. Sheep do not trust what is ahead. They're suspicious. They're stubborn. They're fearful. So they need someone out in front of them who they know is their shepherd. They won't just take whoever shows up. It needs to be someone who is establishing a relationship with them, he said. They're a relational animal with which I mean, requires building trust. He said sheep are very vulnerable. They're defenseless. They don't have a built-in defense mechanism. And again, that's how God likens us. That's to what God likens us. He said sheep, I thought this is interesting. He said sheep are very easily deceived, thinking, believing the wrong thing. Hence the need for leading and, by way of the metaphor, teaching from the word of God. We are easily deceived as a human race. Think the wrong thing, believe false truths, false doctrine. Hence the great command from the chief shepherd, preach my word and teach it a lot because I love my sheep and I want them to be led and fed that way. He said sheep will often follow other sheep into hazardous situations. 
highlighting further the need for a shepherd. And he, he thought this, I thought this is interesting. He told stories of how sheeps will sometimes, a sheep will sometimes follow a goat. And when they load sheep into like a back of a semi-truck to transport them, they can't get a sheep to do it because they can't, you know, push the sheep in there. So they get a goat and the sheep follows the goat. And then when they take sheep to the slaughterhouse for harvesting, for meat, the goat, same thing, goes in there and the goat bolts one way and the sheep falls to its doom. And the sheep behind that first sheep see it going and so they all follow it in to be turned into lamb chops and mutton and whatever else. Again, all of this highlights the need for sound biblical shepherding as sheep, doesn't it? Oh, well, I'm a Lone Ranger Christian. I kind of go and come and go as I please. Then you're going to end up being turned into proverbial mutton, my friend. A wolf will eat you. Or, or you'll believe false things. Oh, I, I do Christianity kind of, you know, me and God or me and, you know, watching my show or listening to the radio. Then, then, then you're going, you're being deceived. You're going the wrong way. And you're not allowing the chief shepherd to care for you in, in his greatest, fullest way. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Christ held compassion on them. And then I think it's very interesting that the next passage is about how Christ sends out men to get the church going and planted and started and and thriving. Isn't that interesting? You may recall the story of a certain sheep from New Zealand named Shrek. Have you heard this story? Shrek, being a sheep like you and I, Decided he wanted to do his own thing. I'll figure it out my own way. I can go here and go there and stay home and I'll, I'll, I'll be okay. So what did Shrek do? For six years, he went and hid in a cave. And this is what he looked like when they found him. <laughs> it's a true story. <laughs> Stubbornness makes you stupid, I suppose, huh? It does me. But he wandered off and dodged shorning for six years. And when they finally, pardon me if I'm not using the right agricultural terms here. When they, is it shorn? When they finally shored him? Shorn him? Shornified him? I don't know what it is. But when they finally cut off his wool, how about that? That provided, Shrek provided enough suits for 20, uh, enough wool, I should say, for 20 suits. Which I suppose, uh, it's not in the Bible, is a further metaphor for how God, despite our sinfulness and our stubbornness, can make a situation work out for good. Though the moral of that story isn't go hide for six years in a cave so you can do good. All of us like sheep, Isaiah 53, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Like us, sheep need tending, shepherding, leading, guiding, care. It's precisely because of this that Christ feels a deep compassion and expresses that compassion in the building and establishing of the church. And so again, in light of our sheepiness, it is absolutely remarkable that the text does not say, seeing how much they are prone to wander, he felt scorn. I, I find it remarkable that it doesn't say that. 
And by the way, by this time in the first century of Israel, there were, there were a few centuries of terrible shepherding of God's people. Terrible. They were, they were not guiding. They were not preaching. Ezekiel 34, God's heart. I want to read an extended passage here just to feel the heart of God for how important biblical shepherding and pastoring is to God. Notice this, Ezekiel 34. Prophesy, God says to Ezekiel, against the shepherds. This isn't talking about the sheep herders, but the, 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 the leaders, the spiritual leaders, the pastors. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, oh, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed. And these are all spiritual terms here. The injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. With force and harshness you've ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. In other words, they succumbed a while to false teaching and were left to their own ways. My sheep were scattered, they wandered all over. Over all the mountains on every high hill, my sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live, declares the Lord God. Surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. And on and on, God goes on condemning them. God's heart for the sheep there. So you see that brought to a fruition with the chief shepherd Christ as he arrives, the planting of churches, and then books like First and Second Timothy and the book of Titus, where much, much ink is spilled on the topic of shepherding. Paul says, Timothy, okay, because of God's heart and Christ's heart for the sheep, as we see in places like Ezekiel, I want men who are qualified to be elders, who are above reproach, who have training, who know how to teach the word of God, who love people, who can do counseling, who, who give themselves rigorously to train other men because God loves the sheep so much that he wants many, many men trained up to care for his sheep for whom he died in all of the local churches. That's the plan. Compassion for our wandering ways. Number five, number six and last, almost out of time here. Christ shows his compassion by commissioning, commissioning, I should say, commissioning of his under shepherds so that many people can get biblical, as much biblical care as possible. I apologize for that typo there. Should say many people should get as much biblical care as possible. As much biblical care as possible. Verse 37 and 38, as much biblical care as possible. Look at verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, so notice how he responds to seeing the sheep without shepherds. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Harvest of what? Of souls. Meaning, man, there are a lot of souls out there who are ready to, to be saved, to bow the knee to me, to be forgiven, and but who will need who will need subsequent care because it's not just, well, become a Christian and then, then doggone it, I just kind of cruise control till death. No, that's just the beginning. Just like when a 
when a baby is born, you don't say, oh, a baby's born. Great. Leave it. Time to go. Let's get more babies born. No, you start to care for the baby. So it is when a soul is born, when a soul is born. Christ says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. What a tragedy. Meaning there were very few men who had gone through training and had the biblical qualifications, sound doctrine, sound character to go and say, and, and, and to corral the sheep for the glory of God by the love of God. If you're a cheetah or a velociraptor or a great white shark, you don't need shepherding. But if you're a sheep, God has made you to have visible shepherding. And if you dodge that, you just kill yourself. You're like Shrek. You think you're doing good, but it's, you're avoiding the Lord's love and his care. And so he says, therefore, verse 38, beseech the Lord of the harvest, who is Christ. Pray to him, ask him, send out workers and do his harvest. Send out workers, more people who will care for the flock. This, by the way, is partly, this verse is in part why we started the Entrust, the Cornerstone Men's Leadership Training, because we need to train up more workers for the harvest. Christ loves humanity so much that he wants to make sure they all get the kind of care which the Bible describes they need to get. So he's going to send out men teaching and preaching. These men will start again with the 12. So here we are, just as a preview for coming weeks. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. So the next thing he does, Jesus summoned, answered prayer right here, by the way. Jesus says, pray that workers will be sent out. Verse 1, chapter 10, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority. And we'll talk about the rest later. And these guys go, by 100 A.D., there are churches planted uh, like with, uh, across a radius of a thousand miles in the Roman Empire. Absolutely amazing. That is how Christ extends his compassion through these workers of the harvest, biblically qualified men. And so healthy New Testament kind of churches then become the visible expression of Christ's compassion. Assuming we do it scripturally, They are created by Christ to help others who are beat down, thrown down, who are wandering like Shrek, to help them. John 21, 16, Jesus said, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And Paul and the apostles took it up and we'll end here. And they said, do we have Acts 20? I'll just read it. Paul said, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from even among your own selves, men will arise. First Peter 5, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, shepherd the flock of God among you. And if you're not in the flock of God, I pray, though you may be, visibly in it, but if you're not sincerely in it by faith in Christ, I pray that you would see that statement in verse 36 of Christ's compassion. Most demonstrably visible in the cross and his death for your sin. And ask him, ask him to forgive you. Receive his compassion. Confess your sin to him. 
Be saved, not by your works, but by receiving his compassion and enter the most privileged place to be in the entire world, the sight of heaven, the flock of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the chief shepherd, mighty to save, full of compassion. Lord, we marvel that you look on us as wandering, imperfect sheep, Lord. And you have feelings of love, mercy. Thank you, Lord. If any of us in here this morning are not your sheep, Holy Spirit, would you come? Come, Lord. Help us to believe, to put faith in you. That all of us, Lord, who are sheep, would embrace your compassion, Lord Jesus. Love what you love. We would love you. We would love the church. And our lives would reflect your grace and your compassion in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.